electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We just heard from Fed Chair Powell speaking at the Economic Club of New York for about the past hour or so. We saw it yields initially moving lower from their 16-year highs and then reversing higher again. Former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan is here with me. He says the bond market has stepped into the driver's seat and Powell himself ain't in charge anymore. We'll get his reactions to these remarks in just a moment. First, let's tell you what the market setup is at the moment this afternoon. Uh, We've seen the Dow actually hanging on to a gain of about 111 points despite earlier declines. It's up a third of a percent, up a quarter percent for the S&P, up a little bit less than that for the NASDAQ. Over in uh, the Treasuries, that's where the action is. The 10-year yield during Powell's Q&A portion hit 4.996. That's how close we got uh, to piercing 5% on the 10-year. You can see the 30-year above that level as well. As for commodities, oil was lower earlier on on that news of U.S. lifting Venezuelan sanctions. It has turned higher now to nearly 89 a barrel. Uh, That's a two-thirds percent gain. Gold as well, uh, also keeping an eye on the precious metal, now turning higher by half a percent. Let's get more thoughts right now, more reaction to what we just heard from the Fed chair. As I mentioned, joining me here on set, Robert Kaplan is former president of the Dallas Fed. Fed, and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us as well. Um, if I may, Robert, just for a moment, let me bring in Steve. Um, Steve, could you just pinpoint a couple of the comments first in his prepared remarks that sent yields lower, and then in the Q&A portion, we saw uh, the opposite take place. Yeah, well, I mean, there was something for everybody in there, and, and I thought it leaned just a touch hawkish, but just a touch. I mean, if he says, uh, if he makes a, a plain statement that If the economy doesn't slow down, we may have to do more. And the economy hasn't slowed down. Well, you take that the way you want. And uh, people took those initial remarks as being dovish because he did say there were things in train that could cause the the, that could help the Fed in the inflation fight, including uh, the lags of monetary policy, including higher rates and an expectation the economy will slow. But then he said, you know, later on that 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 there were reasons why the economy may not slow and why rates may not be high enough. I think that caused a spike. By the way, very interesting here. And um, I don't want to do Rick's job for him. God knows I couldn't. (laughs) But you did see that. Long yields went higher and short yields went down. And we're now at some, I don't know where we haven't been, but we're only 22 it. points inverted at this point right now. Uh, do you have the, yeah, 21, 20, 21, 6, right, exactly. 22 points inverted right now. We haven't been there in a very long time. Uh, I forget how long back you have to go. But, but it is interesting, and he talked about rates being higher for longer. Well, that raised it, but the short rate also came down, as did, by the way, Kelly, the probabilities of rate hikes. It's the best we can do in terms of the market's bet, in terms of where rates are going, but just a, under a 4% uh, probability of a November hike. You're now down around 30. You were at 38 before for November, and you're down around, what do you want to call it, um, 35, 40 3536 for the December hike that had been as high as 50. So the market backing off saying, you know what? The story here is higher for longer, but not higher. 
All right. So let me turn uh, to President Kaplan on that note and, and get your reaction to what I think is the most apt phrase of the week, which is that the bond market is now in the driver's seat. You say not even so much the Fed. Now, maybe Powell's language here and there can give an opening uh, to the market to test, and as it did today, continually kind of test how high the yields need to go. But uh, just explain what the dynamics are that you see here. So let me just comment. I agree with what Steve said in his take on this. I think, I think Jay Powell did the right thing in that he warned they may have to do more, but I also said they're going to move deliberately, which sets up if they decide to skip the November meeting, which I think they should. Uh, and so I think he's positioned, he's trying to position the Fed to do their job. The reason I say the bond market is, is responding to other factors, I think the bond market is responding, honestly, at this point, a little bit less to the Fed yeah. and more to the fact we're running very large deficits, very high deficit spending, the supply of treasuries going forward is very significant. And it's not that the bond market, that we won't buy treasuries, just you have to get paid more. And I also think the bond market is looking a couple of years over the horizon, maybe to a Fed funds rate that's closer to three and a quarter, three and a half. I don't know when that will be, but over a couple of years mm -hmm. at 150 basis point term premium. And it's sort of starting to get positioned for that. So let me ask you, why do you say that it might be, for instance, the deficit situation driving the long end higher when people might say, well, but we've had stronger economic data and this is this is a good thing. And that's why yields are rising. I mean, how do we how do we know? So debt to GDP is now over 100 percent. Present value of unfunded entitlements is 75 trillion and growing. Uh, as was discussed in this interview, the Fed is, is, is no longer a buyer of treasuries. It's, in fact, laying its balance sheet runoff. The banks, we know, for obvious reasons, are no longer buying long-dated treasury-related securities. And we've just come off a year that just ended where we ran close to a $2 trillion deficit. And people sort of yawn at that, but they need a reminder, post-crisis, Pre-recession, this is, as a percentage of GDP, a historically large deficit. Yes. And prospects are it's going to get higher. The other thing that's going to happen is the government bond market is going to reprice, and we're going to go from $620 billion of interest expense this year to higher next year and higher the year after as, as bonds reprice to these higher levels. Uh, those are significant developments which will test the Treasury market. And viewers of the show have watched as we've gotten the Treasury auctions, especially in the past week, the 10-year, the 30-year. When they don't go well, we see yields spike and we see the market taking a leg lower on that. Uh, Steve Powell was asked directly about fiscal policy and about the dynamics uh, President Kaplan's describing. And he said, we don't focus on fiscal policy. We wouldn't change monetary policy because we think, for instance, the U.S. is on an unsustainable path. Everyone knows that. We're just going to focus on maximum employment and stable prices, which is their mandate. But but there is a third part of that mandate in the Fed Act of 1977. And the third phrase is for them to focus on maximum employment, stable prices and moderate long term interest rates. And I wonder if this is the first time in a long time that third part hasn't come in conjunction with getting the first two right. That's a really interesting point, uh, Kelly. I will say rhetorically, Fed officials have eased up a little bit on their ban about talking about it. They have now started to reiterate this idea of the debt level being unsustainable. Um, I will point out that when she was in the Federal Reserve, uh, current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen 
talked uh, continuously about the unsustainability of the deficit. Um, I'm not sure that has helped uh, with the sustainability of the deficit now that she's in a position to matter in that regard. Right. Um, I, I want to make one other point, and I'm interested if, if Robert Kaplan would comment on this, if you don't mind, Kelly. Um, he twice talked about reaching this level of the sufficiently restrictive level. He said the first time in the speech we're committed to achieving the sufficiently restrictive level. And then the second time around, he said we're trying to achieve a sufficiently restrictive level. It tells you, Robert, you know better than all, as well as anybody, about choosing your words carefully. He is not ready to go and say the Fed is done. And I don't think it's crazy to think that if this economy does not slow, the Fed will do more. Hmm. I agree with all that. And, and here's the unfortunate reason why they may need to do more. I don't think the organic or, or underlying economy is that much stronger than it was pre-COVID. I think the real Fed funds rate, honestly, uh, organically, is still probably half to three quarters of 1% real. I think what you've got here... And we're at 2.5% or something these days. What you've got, what you've got going on right now is... Uh, deficit spending in size. I know the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act were supposed to be paid for, but so far the pay-fors haven't materialized. We have a few hundred billion of unspent ARPA money that has to be obligated by the end of 24 mm -hmm. and spent by 25. That is to some extent, in my view, counteracting the cooling effect of monetary policy. And think about the, <laughs> the impact of what you're saying. As a result, then the Fed has to take rates higher than otherwise, which is resulting in the repricing we're seeing of everything from mortgage That's rates right. to you name it. So if it weren't for that deficit spending with those powerful programs, I actually think the Fed might well be done or might have been done 25 or 50 basis points ago. But I'd be on my toes, too, at the Fed if this fiscal impulse is alive and well, which I think it's going to be for all of 23 and 24, the economy is going to stay resilient, not in interest-sensitive sectors or goods, but in services. And I think they need to be prepared to decide how to how to deal with it. And I think he's right to leave his options open. Even the latest jobs report showed a lot of the strength was in education and health care. So it wasn't necessarily even a sign of the cyclical staying power of this economy or anything, but so much a sign of those parts that are almost uh, insensitive to, to changes at, at all. Steve, what would you add before we let you go here? As the market, by the way, stocks are near session highs, and they seem to be seizing. It's like the stock market is seizing in, on the idea they might be done, and the bond market is in a world of its own. Yeah, the bond market, <clears throat> Robert Kaplan is absolutely right to point to the issuance uh, uh, issue right there, as well as the macro effects of that issuance coming down. Um, <clears throat> initially, we were thinking that there was going to be uh, a fall off in the fiscal stimulus, and that has really turned around and changed the, the outlook on a dime. Um, there's this uh, comment that you guys have been running below, which I think is well worth underscoring, the idea that there's not evidence the Fed is too tight right now. That is helpful for the idea that, that the economy could continue to grow reasonably well. Um, I just got to sit back, Kelly, and watch the data as it come in, comes in. I feel pretty secure that I understand the Fed's reaction function here. If this economy does not slow, I believe that Powell and the Fed will have to act to slow it. I don't know when that point is that they pull the trigger and say, I've seen enough here. But certainly, if the fourth quarter comes in above potential again, 
I believe it will be time for them to give up the ghost on this economy running below potential. And I will point out the history of this. You have to go back to not the past Jackson Hole, but the Jackson Hole before that in 2022, where Powell said back then and reiterated in 23, reiterated at the press conference and again in this speech that bringing inflation down requires a period of below trend growth. They haven't got it at some point. They have to insist upon getting it if they're going to live by that principle that it is what is required to bring down inflation. So I agree with everything Steve just said. And I think the situation which is going to be challenging is over the horizon. So let's say the Fed has to in the short run do more over the horizon. This government spending will eventually dissipate. Uh, ARPA money will finally get used. It may not be till 2025. When that happens it all and we see head. the real organic economy, you might then see a abrupt about face. And we'll yes, we'll get a chance to see what this so organic Robert, economy. Are, really Robert, are you, Steve, are, Robert, are you saying the Fed should let that pass through the snake, so to speak, and not not address it? Say this is I don't a temporary think have, fiscal field. No, what I would do if I were at the Fed, I don't think they have a choice but to address it, given their mandate. But while this might be controversial, I'd also be in my seat calling out a a broader diagnosis of why we're having to do what we're doing. They're not going to want to do what I'm about to say, which is it would be great if they could if they believe this, that part of this strength may be temporary. But yes, as he said, we take fiscal policy as a given. We have to react to it. But I'm I I think that I'd be I'd, I'd have to act. But I'd be torn about explaining this is a very uncomfortable dynamic. Yeah. And then knowing you might have to reverse that as things play out as well. Right. Gentlemen, thanks so much. Robert Kaplan, thanks for joining us today. Steve, always a pleasure. Our Steve Leesman. Uh, by the way, tomorrow morning on Squawk Box, Steve has an exclusive interview with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic, who has been one of the more dovish members and, and outspoken about it lately. Very much look forward to his reaction here. 7.30 a.m. Eastern. Let's turn now to what this all means for your money. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies, and CNBC's Rick Santelli is here as well. All right, gentlemen, what do I, I, I'm struck, Dave, by the reaction here where bond yields are still near their highs, but stocks are now near session highs as well. Seems to be a pattern, Kelly. I mean, the market, the, the risk asset market in general, credit and equities are just trading really, really well, even in the face of these higher bond yields. And maybe keying more off the economy itself and the data that we're getting and the fact that this is a strong economy, as Jay Powell put it. And um, maybe policy really isn't as restrictive as uh, many people thought it was for a variety of reasons that you've been discussing with your past two guests, as well as those that Jay discussed in his uh, presentation at the New York uh, economics club. And Dave, you were one of the first people pounding the table on corporate credit, which is starting to become something we're hearing more and more about. Um, just very tactfully, uh, uh, very uh, specifically speaking, what is it that you think people and investors should be doing right now as they navigate this new environment? Well, look, we, we've all year highlighted the fact that uh, the debt markets had repriced significantly last year, particularly in high yield credit, and you were paid quite substantially to take credit risk over equity risk this year on a risk-adjusted basis. Still think that's the case. Uh, you could get sub, just sub-investment grade, single B and double B yields uh, in the double digits, something we haven't had for a long time, in an economy that was reasonably robust. And a lot of people really uh, pushed back on us, Kelly, at the beginning of the year because 
pretty much everybody was calling for a recession. And they said, how can you be in real credit during a recession? Well, we weren't really talking about a recession. We were talking about policy that actually wasn't that restrictive. And again, Kelly, you know, my views are not um, necessarily aligned with the discussion you just had. I don't think it's a lot about fiscal. I think this is much, much more about the outsized balance sheet at the Fed and the residual and that's absorbing a lot of the blows to the economy. One more because I want to bring Rick in, but it's on the next question I'm going to ask, which is, aren't we restrictive now? Look at what real rates are doing. I mean, I didn't check. I think we had a tips auction this hour, too. But like we just keep shooting higher. Dave, at this point, we've got to be restrictive. No. Well, I think we have restrictive rate policy. The question is, do we have a restrictive balance sheet? The balance sheet is still $8 trillion. Hmm. It's still absorbed $2 trillion worth of losses in the last year and a half. Uh, as as the portfolio lost money. All of those are huge stimuli that still exist in the economy and are way above what I would call a neutral balance sheet. It's fascinating to me, Kelly, that nobody asks anybody at the Fed what they think a neutral balance sheet is. True. They won't talk about it. And they don't know because, as Ben Bernanke said it, you know, QE works in practice, not in theory. They don't have a theory. But that doesn't mean it isn't it isn't substantially stimulative. And I think that's the big miss across the board. All this fiscal stuff, to me, is a sideshow. All right. Uh, Rick, I'm looking at the 10-year tips yield. We're at about 248. Yeah, you know what? Listen, tips are a lot, in my mind, like 20-year, like the 7-year was. Listen, we could look at tips and we could look at the break-evens. I'm not sure I put the full faith and credit of my brain assessing that those are really reflective where I see inflation rates. But what I do see is the constant debate that Steve just pointed out that everybody's been discussing and pointing fingers at anybody who's talked about a recession is wrong. Well, I don't necessarily believe that entirely. Anybody who read the Beige Book yesterday, yeah. did anything that they state sound like a 35 to 5% GDP economy to you? I think the issue is simple. And I'll tell you what, Mr. Kaplan, I think you win the trophy of the month. Because I think just about everything you said makes sense from the bond vigilante perspective. Fiscal stimulus was bigger. It's lasting longer and paying people certain areas that continued post-COVID not to necessarily work immediately. All of that is much slower in unraveling than many thought. But there's no doubt that it exists. And when we say, is, are rates now restrictive enough? You know, here's what I could say. Why did stocks do better? Because two-year notes went nowhere. As a matter of fact, right now, look at an intraday and then quickly look at a two-day. We're dabbling under yesterday's low yields. But it's the exact opposite of what's going on in a 10-year. Now, that's simple and it's been discussed already, but that's really important because they're not restrictive enough. And, and the Fed, our chairman said, and, and I'm almost quoting And basically what he said was, is that interest rates are found through supply and demand. Well, that's what the market's trying to re-bring out. That's what the market's trying to finally do. Rates have been squashed. They've been squashed since QE came. The long end isn't continuing to do the work of the Fed. It's doing the work the Fed did not do. And it isn't going to stop. And in my opinion, you're going to see term premiums continue to widen. And those are going to start to be restrictive along with the fact 
that the duration that's affecting how much it costs to service the debt, and Steve Leisman brought this up, and he gets the second trophy, over time that duration is going to change. And other things are going to change for the positive. As Bank of America pointed out, all this paper that's underwater because of mark-to-market issues, the little loopholes, well, they're going to slowly continue to see that and hold it to maturity. And some of that two- and three-year paper has probably already given them their full faith and principle, which they're buying T-bills with, which maybe the Treasury ought to send them a thank-you card because they're gobbling up some of that supply. And we can continue to monitor that dynamic by monitoring on which side of $1 trillion the reverse repo market is. All right, so Dave, I'll give you the last word here. Do you think then they need to be doing much more QT and trying to shrink the balance sheet much more quickly? Because uh, I think we all know, you know, any day we might wake up and, and discover we've hit the limit with only, you know, a trillion of shrinkage or whatever. Well, you know, Kelly, I don't I don't like to talk about what I think they should do. Investors aren't going to make money based on what I think they should do. They make money, hopefully, based on what I project they will do. And I don't think they're going to change the balance sheet policy around. They've, they've got it where they want it. Uh, they had the option to go faster. They didn't choose that option for a variety of reasons. And they're not going to choose that now. I think the balance sheet still comes down at a 90 billion pace next year per month as it's been coming down. That will provide quite a bit of tightening and take us back toward more neutral levels. But I do think we still sit in a relatively stimulative position overall between rates and balance sheet. And I think that explains a lot of why uh, so many people missed the economy's strength over the course of this year, and uh, why they've missed the resilience maybe of risk assets on the credit and equity side as well. All right, fair enough. Guys, thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Big day. Needed to have a very big panel for that. David Zerbos and Rick Santelli. Mortgage rates are, meanwhile, above 8%, even more so as the 10-year yield closes in on 5 and it's putting bit pressure on home sales and on the housing market. Let's get the latest from our Diana Olick. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, we got a rough report from the realtors this morning on existing home sales. They dropped 2% in September to just below 4 million annualized. That's the slowest pace since October 2010, which you may recall was during the foreclosure crisis. Just for perspective, two years ago, sales were at 6.3 million annualized. And two years ago was when the average rate on the 30-year fix was at 3%. Yesterday, it jumped to 8. Today, 8.03. Not only is affordability getting crushed, but there is still precious little supply, just 1.13 million homes for sale at the end of September, down about 8% from a year ago. That is the lowest supply of single-family homes for sale since 1982, which, by the way, is when the realtors started tracking that. Now, adding to higher mortgage rates, the median price of a home sold in September was $394,300, up nearly 3% year-over-year, and we're continuing to see more homes selling at the higher end of the market because that's where there's more supply and because higher-end buyers can often use cash. Mortgage demand, as we know, is the lowest since 1995, but we learned today that cash sales in September were 29% of all sales. That, again, matches the highest since 2010, Kelly. It's just incredible. Um, Diana, stay with us as our next guest says that 8% 30-year mortgage shouldn't be a huge surprise given what's happened with rates and the Fed's higher for longer stance. But the upward momentum is hopefully dying down. Matthew Graham is with us. He's chief operating officer at Mortgage News Daily. You know, everyone in rates land, uh, Matthew, has been saying uh, this Treasury, you know, it's over. It's over. I've been hearing this for weeks and uh, it just keeps going. So I, I hope you're right. I mean, you know, we don't know exactly when it's going to be over, but we do hear a chorus of Fed speakers, especially last week, in a very notable way, 
saying that uh, they are restrictive and that they can wait and see what happens with the policy filtering through to the economy. And uh, if that's the case, then there's only so much more that the long end of the yield curve, which is more tied to mortgage rates, is going to rise before uh, we have hit the ceiling. I tweeted the 8% mortgage rate yesterday uh, purposefully to see, you know, just what kind of, of psychological response there was. And nearly everybody, Matthew, responds by saying a crash is coming. A crash is coming. They either say it's unaffordable, an entire generation is ruined, or they say a crash is coming. What are your thoughts? Oh, so many thoughts. Uh, first off, what Diana was just saying about supply is critical. So we need to decide how we're going to define a crash. Are we, are we talking about a crash in home values? Because if supply is the tightest since the 80s, then it's really hard to get values to crash. Uh, 8% rates obviously pose a big problem for first-time home buyers. So, you know, that is a, a big issue. But when I think of crashes for the housing market and uh, for the mortgage market, I think of things like 2007, 2008, and we're just not seeing the same sort of dynamics there in terms of, of risky loan profiles and uh, risk-taking behavior among borrowers and pretty much everybody else in the sector. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's a crash. I think it's painful. I think it's ugly. I think that volume is tremendously constrained and it's not pleasant anybody that's either trying to buy a house or involved in the sale or financing of the house. But uh, I don't see how it crashes the market. And in fact, if I needed somewhere to live and I was going to make a monthly payment right now, I would get a mortgage and buy a house. Hmm. Well, Diana, I always get a, feel a little bit Dante-esque at the moment. I think about the housing market as just like the bottom of hell completely frozen over. And we can argue about who the figures are, you know, stuck in ice there. But um, that it just... That, that it feels a little bit more like that, like there's just, it's almost like activity is just grinding to a halt. Yeah, it's the real estate agents who are in that, you know, yeah. circle of hell that you're talking I, about. I was going to put the policymakers there, but yeah. Them too. But look, yeah, and you talk to the real estate agents and what they say to me is, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen it frozen like this. We went to an open house and we saw a lot of, actually a lot of folks came out to the open house, but they were really just looking. They wanted mm -hmm. to see if home prices were starting to come down. They wanted to see what the competition was out there, if there were other people, you know, looking in their price range. But all of them said, yeah, well, I'm not going to move right now. I'm not going to make a move or make an offer. I just want to see what's going on. And that speaks to this very strong demand. But I'm also interested in what the builders are doing with the mortgage rate write downs. And, and Matt, I, I wonder if you know, is this going to pose any risk to the overall housing market now that we see more and more builders buying to write down the mortgage rates for their buyers? Um, all it really does is uh, sort of artificially props up values just a little bit. If builders are paying points, uh, you know, with their excess profits to buy down the rate to help buyers afford a little bit of a bigger house or more house in terms of the mortgage amount. But I don't know that it causes any sort of systemic risk. It's uh, something that sort of nibbles away at the margins of valuations. But, yeah, I just I also wanted to say to your point, Kelly and Diana, that, uh, yeah, it is ugly. I mean, I don't think anybody in my community of mortgage originators would disagree that in many ways this is worse than the great financial crisis mm -hmm. in terms of volume and activity. And uh, it's definitely not going to come back in any appreciable way until rates start to come down. But I think when they start to come down, that you have a healthier level of demand oh, sure. and less, less fear about getting back into the market uh, among the current 
crop of potential home buyers. You know, to think of the extremes the housing market has been through in just about 36 months' time is, is truly uh, just unbelievable. We'll leave it for now. I appreciate you both joining us today, Matthew Graham and our Diana Olick. Speaking of tough stretches, shares of Alaska Air Group were down uh, as much as 2% today before reversing a little bit higher now after their tough third quarter. The airline is tracking for its 13th straight week in the red, its longest weekly losing streak ever. And of course, high fuel prices are not helping, as we've seen across all of the airlines. Let's bring in our own Phil LeBeau. He is standing by with Alaska Airlines CEO Ben Minicucci. Welcome to both of you, Phil. Thanks, Kelly. Ben, let me, uh, with that setup, ask you the first question, which is, you miss on Q3 versus estimates. You guide lower than the street is expecting for Q4. What's the issue? Well, uh, good morning, uh, Phil and Kelly. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me give you context on Q3. We finished Q3 with a pre-tax margin of 11.4%. That is directly in line with Delta and United. And we didn't have the international tailwinds those network carriers had. We were facing headwinds with the Maui fires. You know, 4% of our capacity in our network is in, is in Maui. And uh, we were facing higher fuel than the rest of the country because the refining margins on the West Coast are 30 cents a gallon higher. So. Despite those headwinds and not having the international tailwind, we had a solid, solid result for uh, Q3, and I'm really satisfied with that. You know, heading to Q4, to answer your question, uh, Phil, uh, we still have those um, uh, fuel uh, headwinds. We still have the headwinds from the Maui fires. So, you know, we're we got it to a little lower in Q4, but our full year pre-tax margin is still healthy at a 7 to 8% for the full year. Ben, look, it was just about a month and a half ago you guys issued guidance, and then you come in with Q3 lower than your guidance. Is revenue slowing down? You mean, did you notice a shift in terms of demand when you went from August into September? You know, what we saw, Phil, was close in demand not being as strong as it was in previous months. So close in demand was not as strong coming into September as it was from, you know, uh, the previous quarter. What we are seeing is peak, in the peak periods, like Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's actually still quite strong. Demand is still strong. What we're seeing is the shoulders. The shoulders, we are seeing some pricing moderation in the shoulders. And I think the combination of that, I think the combination of higher fuel, again, for us, uniquely uh, with, with, uh, with Hawaii and Maui, that's why we reduced our guidance going into the fourth quarter. I want to ask you about Hawaii and Maui. I just listened on the conference call and you guys uh, outlined that you're seeing some rebound in demand there. Obviously, Maui is, is its own unique situation, but you have so much exposure to all of the islands of Hawaii. Um, paint a picture in terms of what the demand looks like. So we have 12% of our capacities to the islands. We have over 30 flights a day to, to Hawaii every day. About 4%, a third of that capacity is, is in Maui uh, right now. And I'll tell you, Phil, I was there because I love Maui's my favorite island. I was there actually vacationing when the fires actually hit. It was catastrophic, and my heart still goes out to the people who lost so much there. But we're totally committed to Hawaii. It is bouncing back. Uh, it was a $20 million impact in Q3 for us. It'll be roughly an $18 million impact in Q4. Uh, but we start, we're starting to see bookings finally go from negative to positive for Maui. So I, as the as it starts coming up, as they're rebuilding Lahaina, uh, I think we're going to start seeing an improving trend in, in Maui. But again, uh, Hawaii is a hugely important franchise for us, being on the West Coast. Ben, we're showing your, your stock chart right now. Look, it's an ugly chart. There is no faith among investors mm -hmm. in airlines, including Alaska, right now. How do you change that narrative? 
Well, Phil, I, I think for Alaska, in terms of a domestic-focused airline, we're uniquely positioned. If you look at, there's a lot of talk about the customers shifting to a more premium product. Well, that's what Alaska has. We have over 300 airplanes in our fleet. 25% of our seats are either first class or premium class. We offer a saver fare as well. We, we're part of a global alliance with One World. Uh, we have lounges, of course, partner lounges across the entire world. Uh, so we are uniquely distinguished from our other domestic competitors across the country. We're more closely aligned with the network carriers. So I still feel really strongly that our business model is well positioned and resilient to take advantage of the recovery here into, into 2024. Ben, I know it's not been a good stretch here for you guys. We appreciate you joining us on the day that you report earnings. Kelly, I will send it back to you. Yeah, great reminder about the impact those, uh, that devastation in Hawaii is having as well. Thank you both, Ben Minicucci and Phil LeBeau. Coming up, rising rates are front and center for the buy now, pay later companies. How worried are they about consumer delinquencies? We will ask the CEO of Klarna how they're handling those risks later in the show. And speaking of delinquencies, Discover Financial shares are plunging after posting a big earnings miss on higher loan loss provisions. They also saw net write-off surge nearly 200 basis points versus last year. The shares are down 7.5%. Let's look at the sector heat map more broadly as we see communication services, tech, and industrials leading today with all the major averages in the green. You heard Rick Santelli say that could be because two-year yields have backed off after Powell's speech, so seeing an opening there. The worst performers are those most exposed to long-term rates, financials, healthcare, real estate, by the way, also consumer discretionary. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are well off session highs now, uh, but they're also well off session lows as the 10-year has been inching towards 5% today. Dom Chu has more on today's movers. Dom? All right, so earnings driving a lot of the action. Kelly, as you point out here with the markets kind of wavering between gains and losses. We'll start on the big earnings mornings from or earnings movers rather from this morning, starting with telecom giant AT&T. If you look at those shares during the pre-market, we saw some real momentum building there, and they're building on top of that for the regular session. Currently up 8% after the telecom giant beat on profits and revenues because they added more subscribers. They also boosted their full-year forecast for a key metric of operating profit growth as well as free cash flow. So AT&T shares very much in focus up 8%. Also watch what's happening with American Airlines. We just spoke about Alaska Airlines before, but American Airlines is up 2% right now. A mixed report earnings better. Revenues were a miss. The forecast was maybe even a little bit more tepid, but American CEO Robert Eisen basically telling CNBC on Squawk Box today that they see the holiday booking trends better than they were last year. So American Airlines accentuating the positive just a bit up 2%. From last night's close, two of the bigger ones to keep a close eye on right now are Netflix still surging up 16%, better than, better than expected uh, profits. 
Revenues were a bit of a miss, but subscriber growth knocked away all estimates. So that's a big focus there. And Tesla shares down about 9% right now. Revenue miss, earnings miss, and some cautious commentary about higher interest rates affecting demand from CEO Elon Musk. And of course, one more thing to keep a close eye on with regard to the overall picture. Check out some of the action that we're seeing overall. Again, with some of these names, I'll send things back over to you. Wow. Thank you, Dom. A lot of big movers today are Dom Chu. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for all the big news of the day. Tyler. All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. Humanitarian aid from the International Red Cross and the World Health Organization is ready to be delivered to Gaza. The two organizations say they have about 100 tons total of aid to deliver to the region, but neither have secured safe humanitarian access. The Red Cross says its aid includes urgently needed medical supplies. California Governor Gavin Newsom plans to travel to China next week to discuss climate action with international leaders there. The visit will include stops in Beijing, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and various provinces where he's expected to sign on to some climate initiatives. Newsom said in a statement that California and China are two of the world's largest economies, which makes a climate partnership between the two a necessity. And Pfizer will price its COVID drug Paxlovid at a little less than $1,400 for a five-day course when it shifts to the commercial market later this year. That is more than double what the federal government was paying when it offered the treatment for free. But it's also the list price before rebates and other discounts to insurers. And don't miss an ex- a special extended edition of Last Call tonight on CNBC. Leading up to and then taking live President Biden's speech on the growing geopolitical risks abroad for both Israel and Ukraine. He'll make those remarks live from the Oval uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you shortly. Coming up, Las Vegas Sands rebounding from an 11-month low after Q3 results met expectations. What are they seeing in Macau and Singapore? And what's it tell us about the strength of the Chinese consumer? We'll ask the CEO next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Las Vegas Sands are higher today by nearly 4% after they reported a beat in profits as sales more than doubled in the third quarter, noting a tourism recovery in Macau. They also announced a $2 billion stock buyback program through 2025. It was previously halted in 2020. Joining me now is our own Contessa Brewer with Las Vegas Sands CEO Robert Goldstein. Welcome to both of you, Contessa. Kelly, thank you very much for that. Rob, it's great to see you today. You know, I'm reading through the analyst notes following the earnings call yesterday. And it's sort of like they were all breathing a a collective sigh of relief saying, oh, it wasn't as bad as we feared. There's been so much speculation about the power of the Chinese consumer. Give me a sense of what you're seeing in Asia. Well, I think our results say it all, don't they? We did uh, almost three billion dollars in revenue, one point one plus billion dollars of EBITDA. Our retail performance is higher than ever in our history. Uh, our MBS results were among the highest in our history at uh, 490. Uh, we understand the concerns of macro China and macroeconomics, but I think we've proved we can make uh, uh, quite a bit of money in this environment, and the numbers reflect that yesterday. Would we prefer a stronger economic environment? Of course we would. 
Um, however, yesterday proves the, the staying power of great properties, great resorts, top-tier accommodations, top-tier gaming uh, can produce quite good results. So $1.1 billion in, in the uh, current environment doesn't seem too bad, does it? You call it MBS. We call it Marina Bay Sands. Probably the <laughs> most lucrative casino property, single most lucrative casino property in the world. Mm. And you were looking at your retail shops coming in at like 150% of pre-pandemic yep. levels. It's it's pretty impressive. I'm curious, uh, your competitor, Bill Hornbuckle, who's the CEO of MGM, was sitting with me on stage in Las Vegas last week. And he said, look, we just got through Golden Week, the five most profitable days uh, in our company's history in Macau. And he said, they're taking market share. Are they taking it from you? I don't know if they're taking it from us. I don't believe so. We're pretty happy with our numbers in Macau, and we our numbers speak for themselves. We keep reinvesting. The Londoner went to a new level yesterday in our, our results. Our Venetian has always been number one in the market. Uh, we're a different place than other, our competitors there. We have uh, numerous casinos. We have 1,300 sleeping rooms, 13,000 sleeping rooms, huge amounts of retail. So our business is very diversified and very top tier. Uh, with all due respect to competition, we've been number one in that market in retail sales, gaming revenue, uh, hotel revenue uh, for many years. And I think that's going to continue. Again, we've spent $15 billion reinvesting in Macau to make sure that we are number one in the market. And yesterday we did $630 million EBITDA. It's only been open for eight months. The great thing about Macau is the trajectory looks very good. It took Singapore about a year and a half to get to where it's at yeah. yesterday. Uh, Macau's halfway there. So we're very confident uh, in what we've done in Macau in both our size scale, but most of, importantly, our quality of product in Macau Rob, is top. Kelly mentioned the buybacks, which, of course, get uh, shareholders excited. You said on yeah. the call last night, $5.6 billion is your pile of cash and talked yeah. about all the ways you're planning to spend that. I'm wondering how much of that is a message to the decision makers in New York State about this gaming license that you have been so intent on trying yeah. to win for years, that proving that you can follow up on the promises that you've made to Long Island uh, and, and the resort that you plan to build out there. Yeah, we've never been more excited about any opportunity than New York. Uh, the people of Nassau have been great to us. We're very happy to be welcomed there. We control the Nassau Coliseum, almost 70 acres. And I think we're gonna build a top tier resort of the highest order something people are very proud of, lots of jobs, lots of opportunities, uh, but something that's a true destination resort. This is not a two-acre small projection. This is meant to be a very, very extravagant uh, proposition. And we want something that speaks to who we are as LBS. We don't build small resorts. We don't build casinos. We build large hotel casino resorts. We'll have Canyon Ranch there. We'll have multiple restaurants. We'll have a huge entertainment venue, mm -hmm. convention space. This we won for the ages and something I think people in New York will be astounded by. And we're very excited. The process is undergoing. Uh, we have both control of the property. We are approaching the zoning requirements very seriously. Our bid will be very, very uh, strong and something to be taken very seriously. And it would give you a presence again in the United States since uh, you sold yes, out of Las Vegas, right? So we did. Rob yep. Goldstein, such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Contessa. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Kelly, you know, there's a lot of competition over those gaming licenses and you have a lot of sharp elbows out. Yes.
we'll no, that was a happens. great discussion. We look forward to seeing what develops there. Contessa Brewer uh, with LVS's Robert Goldstein. Let's turn to the race now for Speaker of the House. Congressman Jim Jordan backing a plan to empower temporary House Speaker Patrick McHenry through the end of the year. But he's not exactly giving up his own quest for the gavel. Got to get out to Emily Wilkins with the latest this hour. Emily, what's happening? Hey, Kelly. Well, Republicans have been meeting now for almost three hours in a room trying to hash forward what they will do next. Jim Jordan, you know, he was prepared to take a third vote today, but he was going to likely lose that one again and not get enough support. So now, as you mentioned, he's backing this idea of temporarily empowering Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry to pass legislation about until January. So that would give them time to move on things like Israel funding. That would give them time to move on things like keeping the government open. But there's a lot of division among Republicans right now on what the best path forward should be. Talked earlier today with Congre Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, and he says that really Congress just needs to get back to work, and if empowering McHenry is the best way to do that, that's what they should do. Listen to what he said. Here is the bottom line. Do we want to move the Republican agenda forward, or do we want to continue to allow the administration to have an absolute green light to do whatever the heck they want to do, I think we need to find a way to get the agenda moving again, and, and I'm willing to support in initiatives that will get us there. Now, the catch of this is, is that it is very likely that if Republicans did decide to move forward with empowering McHenry, they would need help from Democrats. And Democrats have shown that they are potentially open to working together with Republicans on it. But of course, that's a turnoff for a lot of Republicans. I also spoke with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said firmly that Republicans need to elect a speaker. She does not support what they're currently talking about with a pro tem. Listen to what she told us. Our Republican voters worked very hard to give us our majority, and this conference is broken because Republicans worked with Democrats and put us here. Um, so wh what's required for serious people that want to do their job is people need to put their egos down. We need to unite behind a speaker, and that's what our conference needs to do now. Kelly, it's just not clear at this point exactly how Republicans will be moving forward today, whether we're going to see a vote, what we're going to see a vote on. And then, of course, there's the big question if Democrats start coming into play. The Democrats have a couple of asks for what they'd like to see in exchange for their votes, including making sure that the government is kept open and votes on not only Israel funding, but also aid to Ukraine. So I think a lot of uncertainty here in Capitol Hill. Um, but at this point, there's no path to getting someone into the speaker's chair at this point. Wow. All right, Emily, thank you. For now, we appreciate it. Emily Wilkins. Still to come, nearly three quarters of Buy Now Pay Later users have a household income of less than $75,000. With interest rates now pressuring spending, we'll speak to the CEO of Klarna, one of the most widely used BNPL names, about the consumer trends he's seeing. The Dow's down 39 points. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Buy now, pay later payment plans have exploded in popularity in the last couple of years. So much so that eMarketer estimates Americans will buy $72 billion worth of goods using those payment plans this year alone. And that could grow to $125 billion by 2027. Joining me now for an exclusive interview is Sebastian Semiakowski. He is the co-founder and CEO of Klarna. Sebastian, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. What, this is a time when, you know, we see people saying, you know, loan losses provisions are getting worse. Discover's just one of them today, who I think of as maybe kind of in your sandbox. Um, one thing we know for sure is you guys have not had to go through either high inflation or a recession yet. Are you prepared for both or either? 
Well, the, the fact is, like, I mean, the company, I, I was part of starting this company when I was 23, and that, unfortunately, is 18 years ago. <laughs> so it's been a while. And I, I did take Klarna through the first financial crisis of 07. Wow. So, yes, high inflation, less so, but financial, you know, turbulence for sure. You know, the interesting thing is that uh, what is sometimes misunderstood, if you think about what buy now, pay later is, the way we do buy now, pay later, zero interest and no revolving, only fixed installments. And it happens to be, especially in the U.S., this attracts a very different type of very conscious consumer uh, that really, you know, is a little bit fed up with credit cards and how they lure you into too much high interest rates revolving debt. So it's a conscious consumer. And that's why we've seen losses 30 percent below credit card industry standards, because that conscious consumer is also, you know, usually uh, you know, being yeah. able to go tough times better. I, uh, I'm shocked so. that you guys have been around since 2007. That's really interesting. So what, how does it work? We know normally credit card debt, maybe you fall a little behind. You got to how does it work on BNPL? What happens if you miss a payment or can't make a payment on an object or you lose your job? How, how does that workout work? Well, the, you know, if you don't pay, it's not that different from a credit card that eventually, obviously, will have to go through some kind of debt collection process, et cetera. But it's actually more how the, I mean, one of my favorite uh, shows, if you watch, I'm not sure I'm allowed to advertise Netflix here, <laughs> but if you look Credit Cards Explained, uh, it just shows all the bad tricks that, can, you know, banks have been applying to maximize the balances that people build on the credit cards. I mean, an average credit card balance is $5,000 in the US. The total debt on credit cards is a trillion dollars nowadays. And so it's all built on like maximum instant rates, you know, revolve as much as possible. This is a different credit card product, uh, sorry, credit product. It is built on installments, fixed term, you always pay off. And so people carry a balance of about $150. Wow. And, it's, and that just carries a very different type of behavior that, you know, you use credit occasionally and then you use debit for other purchases. So, I have so that's many, why you're also seeing better performance. So many questions and literally 90 seconds to ask you. I want to ask you about the IPO, obviously, but let me just ask you first about this. You guys have been around. You've been through a couple cycles. You have some experience. Some, there are some newer players who have not. Where should we as investors be looking for spots of weakness that your competitors might have that you think that you don't? Well, I think if you look at some of the competitors, especially the ones that are listed, I think that, you know, we sometimes all get grouped into buy now, pay later. Uh, but a lot of those are basically second, third layer, uh, you know, um, financing products where basically it's more about buying a, a bed, a mattress on installments where actually the interest rate. I mean, one of our U.S. competitors has over 50 percent of their consumers being deep subprime charging an interest rate of over 30 percent. Like so sometimes these get, you know, put together. But the truth is they're very, very different. Why are you high different? ticket purchases are different? Sorry, yeah, you guys don't do as much high ticket. I see that you do a lot of clothing and accessories, technology, health and beauty. So are, you're basically trying to fund day to day purchases. Yes. I mean, our idea is like, you know, when I was a kid, worked at Burger King and you would swipe your card, it would be like this press one for debit, press two for credit. And that made a lot of sense because consumers then would do debit for some purchases and credit for some purchases. And we clone actually does about 35 percent of our volume is debit. So we just want to bring that experience back. The credit card companies stopped doing that, obviously, because people weren't building balances and weren't borrowing as much ah. if they didn't put all of their spending on the credit card. So that at the end of the month, they had a bigger bill and they would be more likely to revolve. Right. So I think that, like, we're just trying to build a healthier, better credit product. And I think our loss levels prove that. But you have Very to be mindful because a lot of people portray themselves as buy now, pay later in the investment community, but not everyone is offering the same type of products in the market. I remember the, the press one, press two as well. And you're right. It went away. And now I'm thinking about we have about 15 seconds. Are you going to IPO this year? 
And this year would be tough, but it's soon going to happen. I mean, we have a fantastic growth in the U.S. We have over 35 million consumers now. It's our biggest market by revenue. So we're very excited about the progress and very, very excited about the prospects in the U.S. as well. So that, right. you know, makes it more interesting. Sebastian, very fun uh, checking in with you. Hope we can continue the conversation throughout the cycle. We appreciate it. Sebastian Semiakowski is the CEO of Klarna. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.